Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with aggression expert, Dr. Brad Bushman. Brad is the Margaret Hall and Robert Randall Reinhardt Chair of Mass Communication at Ohio State University. Brad's work focuses on the causes, consequences, and solutions to the problem of human aggression and violence. He was a member of President Obama's Committee on Gun Violence and has testified before the U.S. Congress on the topic of youth violence. His research has challenged several myths, such as the idea that violent media has a trivial effect on aggression and that venting anger reduces aggression. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles and has been featured extensively in the mass media, including an appearance on one of my all-time favorite television programs, Penn & Teller Bullshit. One of the highlights of my conversation with Brad was being able to discuss his work on catharsis, which is the idea that venting anger using things like strenuous exercise is an effective way to cope with feelings of anger. This is a classic example of the importance of treating psychology as a science. On the surface, the idea of venting anger in a quote-unquote healthy way makes perfect sense. But as Brad explains, the data on this topic suggests otherwise. I was also surprised to discover that, according to Brad, violent video games can, in fact, increase aggressive behavior. I'm not very familiar with the literature on this topic, but I know there is some controversy about this relationship. I have mixed feelings on the topic. On one hand, the idea that some young people are spending more and more hours of the day engrossed in increasingly realistic, violent gaming scenarios should give us all pause. It would be shocking if this type of exposure had zero negative impact on one's perceptions of reality. That being said, all good video games are fantastical by nature, and some are entertaining because they explore violent themes in an artistic manner. And even if there is a link between violent media and aggressive behavior, it's much more difficult to pinpoint how this aggression would manifest in the real world and what we should do about it. Violence has always been a theme in art, including the plays of Shakespeare that we read in high school, some of the music we listened to in our adolescence, and the films we've enjoyed throughout our lives. Obviously, this is a complicated issue, but I hope that you gain some new insights after listening to Brad's perspectives and research findings. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Brad Bushman. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about aggression. Uh, So why don't you start by uh, by defining uh, aggression as it occurs in your research? Um, You know, specifically, is aggression different from violence? Uh, Are we talking about physical and sort of nonverbal or or, or verbal types of aggression? Is that that all uh, one and the same? Uh, how How do you define aggression in your research? Sure. Well, I think um, the definition is pretty universal among all aggression researchers and aggressions, any behavior intended to harm another person who doesn't want to be harmed. 
Um, the harm could be physical or psychological. Um, whereas violence is any aggressive behavior intended to cause extreme physical harm, such as injury or death. So that's the difference between aggression and violence. Um, all violent acts are aggressive, but not all aggressive acts are violent, only those designed to cause extreme physical harm would be violent. Okay. Uh, so is, is aggression something that is just uh, omnipresent and common in the average person? Or is this, is this uh, something that's specifically much more likely to occur in subsets of the population? Uh, well, both. Um, it is common in most people. Um, you, you don't have to teach people how to behave aggressively. It comes very naturally. In fact, the most aggressive people on the planet are like one to three-year-olds. Um, <laughs> studies of uh, free play indicate that about 25% of what they do is aggressive, um, like hitting, kicking, biting, pulling hair. Not even like mafia members or street gangs have higher percentage of uh, aggressive actions as toddlers do. Uh, thank goodness they don't have weapons or would be all in uh, deep trouble. Um, <laughs> it kind of... Uh... It kind of follows this theme I, I've discussed with some of my past guests where uh, sort of the, the role of a parent in raising a child is to remove or at least regulate a, a lot of the default behaviors that you see in kids. And, and it sounds to me like you're saying uh, that's aggression kind of fits that perfectly. Exactly. Yeah. So not only parents, but uh, society as a whole. Uh, teaches people how to inhibit their aggressive impulses because those come uh, quite naturally. So uh, there are individual differences. You asked about individual differences. So there are uh, several stable individual differences in aggressive behavior. One is just the trait aggressiveness. Um, it's probably more stable than any trait except for intelligence, especially at, at the extreme ends. People who are extremely aggressive tend to be extremely aggressive throughout their whole life. People who are extremely non-aggressive tend to be non-aggressive throughout their whole lives. Most people start a little high and get lower over the lifespan. That's interesting that you say, I was, I was thinking about that earlier today about how, you know, you, you, you talk about some people and you're like, they don't have a, they don't have a violent bone in their body. And it sounds like what you're saying is that these perhaps different from some other uh, human personality traits that this aggressiveness is, is fairly robust and consistent over time. It is very stable over time. And do you think that, uh, do you think that if you're, if you're trying to look at, uh, at causes of, of aggression, do you, do you, is it, uh, is it worth studying causes of aggression as a whole, or do you, do you tend to zero in on the most aggressive people when you're trying to, 
study this this behavior these behaviors well you could do both usually aggression is not due to one single factor usually it's due to cumulative factors adding up in a dangerous way um so i think it makes sense to look at not only risk factors for aggression but also there are protective factors as well so let's let's jump right in I think let's start with some of the environmental and situational factors, and then let's, I'd like to circle back and talk about uh, traits a little bit more. Um, if, if we had to start with one of the really big environmental factors that is going to increase the likelihood of aggression, what, what would we be talking about? Probably provocation. So the overwhelming number of murders for example, are due to anger. People um, becoming angry after they're provoked and they, they kill somebody uh, more than like drugs or love triangles or other things. So provocation is probably the big one. And now you mentioned anger. So is, uh, how, how does uh, anger relate to this, uh, to this equation of, of, or this recipe of, of, uh, of someone engaging in violent behavior? Well, I think anger is a response to provocation. Okay. Now, on this, I know you're not actually saying that you're not removing responsibility by saying, you know, if you provoke someone, that's why they, they acted violently. Uh, you're just sort of saying that that tends to cause the, the, the aggressive behavior. Um, so in terms of uh, why is it that some people react differently to being provoked, right? Some people you could kind of, um, uh, some people that sort of are have sort of like an uh, obsession with honor uh, in, in terms of the way that they think of themselves, you know, somebody that that uh, you, you kind of hear that a lot. You know, he disrespected me. You hear a lot of comments like that when people are in are about to get in fights or afterwards. Um, what is it about uh, about an individual that is going to cause the provocation to lead to to violence? Yeah, so I think there are two things I'd like to say about this. First, provocation can reduce differences you typically see in aggressiveness. So for example, typically males are more physically aggressive than females are, but provocation reduces that difference. Um, the second thing I'd like to say is not all people respond to provocation in the same way. You mentioned one important uh, difference, this culture of honor, which is more prevalent in the southern United States than in the northern United States. Uh, another uh, difference is narcissism. Um, I've done a lot of research on that personality trait. It's a personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, but it's also a trait that everybody has some amount of. Um, and people who are high in narcissism uh, think they're special people who deserve special treatment, that they're entitled to this. And when they don't get the special treatment they think they deserve, 
they lash out at others in an aggressive way. So they're especially prone to uh, provocation. I see. So uh, I've I've had a, a couple guests on in the past, and we've we've had a, a lengthy discussion about narcissism and sort of how uh, it kind of comes from this uh, unstable sense of self that you're always trying to defend yourself. Um, against criticism, you have this sort of weakness uh, or sensitivity to criticism. Um, is uh, in the most broad sense, do you think that people in general that uh, don't have a strong view of themselves are going to be more likely to aggress when provoked? In, in other words, is it is it just narcissism or is it sort of um, any sort of attack to the self would make somebody more likely to be aggressive? Well, I don't think anybody likes to be attacked. And um, um, most people respond to attack with um, aggression, but people who are high in narcissism seem especially inclined to respond to um, uh, provocations with aggression. People who are in narcissism are also more aggressive than others when they're not provoked, but the difference is much greater when they are provoked. Interesting. Uh, so going back to uh, some of the, like the situational factors, um, you know, you, you had mentioned provocation. Uh, so that, so if somebody's being uh, provoked, uh, the individual differences get smaller. Uh, what are some other uh, situational factors, you know, things, a situation that someone might find themselves in that is going is significantly going to increase the likelihood of aggression? Well, anything unpleasant or aversive, like provocation, of course, fits in that uh, group, but like frustration, which means blocking your, your goal, um, loud noise, unpleasant odors, bitter taste, crowding, um, hot temperatures, you know, any of these unpleasant pain um, can trigger, they automatically produce a fight or flight response, these unpleasant uh, stimuli. So um, yeah, if, if, if you can't flee, then the fight response is um, the most likely response. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in my my lectures about uh, about stress, yeah, we, we we talk about sort of there's a lot of uh, calculations that go on whether when you when you experience uh, your stress response, whether it's fight or flight. Um, obviously, that you know some of the subconscious stuff going on is. Uh, is can I uh, uh, can I fight? In other words, if the if if the um, you know if you're you're at a bar and someone's talking to you know you're getting a verbal altercation. If they're your size, you might or, or smaller, you might be likely to aggress. But if they're bigger, may, you know the the flight response might be more likely. Um, have you seen any any research that 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 looks at um, whether or not that's the case? Yeah, but. Alcohol reduces those inhibitions. So um, um, alcohol doesn't increase aggression by stepping on the gas, 
it increases aggression by cutting the brake lines. So normally we have strong inhibitions against behaving aggressively, but alcohol uh, reduces those inhibitions. So things people normally wouldn't do, um, when they're intoxicated, they, they sometimes do. So alcohol is another situational factor. Exposure to violent media is another situational factor. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've heard of the weapons effect. Uh, there's a large body of research showing just the mere presence of a weapon, like a gun, just seeing one can increase aggressive thoughts and uh, behaviors. So those are some situational factors. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely some interesting work. I, I do wanna talk about that a little bit more in depth, uh, but I, I, I'm noticing like this theme um, sort of the situational factors um, that that will lead to more likely to lead to aggression. And you'd mentioned that that alcohol will cut the brakes. It doesn't necessarily add energy, but it, it takes away the brakes. Um, there's this sort of convergent story that um, that self-control and self-regulation is a huge piece of the puzzle. Um, what uh, what what are some of the, the, the findings that you've seen in, in the research looking at how self-control relates to aggression? Is it, is, it, is it the most important piece or are there, you know, is this one of many? Uh, it, it may very well be the most important piece. Uh, my colleagues, uh, Michael Godfordson and Travis Hershey, published a book called A General Theory of Crime. That's a pretty brazen title. What general factor could cause crime? Is it bad parenting, bad genes, substance abuse, poverty, frustration? No, actually what they concluded is the single best predictor of criminal behavior, especially violent criminal behavior, is poor control. Um, Aggression often starts where self-control stops. Wow. That, yeah, that, that is super interesting. Um, now, uh, you, you mentioned uh, that the mere presence of a, of a weapon can uh, increase the likelihood of aggression or, or perhaps violence. Uh, could you talk about that research and how, how those experiments are conducted? Yeah, sure. Um, so the original study was conducted by Len Berkowitz, who is actually my academic grandfather, um, and uh, LePage. And in in 1967, I think they published this study. And um, participants were either angered or not angered. Uh, They angered them by giving them electric shocks, either a large number or in the no angry condition, a smaller number of electric shocks. And then they were given a chance to retaliate against the person who shocked them by also giving that person electric shocks. And on the table, uh, there were some objects in some of the conditions. They're randomly assigned to one of three conditions. One condition, there was a rifle and a handgun on the table. And the experimenter said something like, oh, I'm so sorry, the other experimenter didn't clean up after themselves. 
those objects are part of another study, just ignore them. Or there were like um, badminton rackets and sports equipment on the table. Mm -hmm. The experimenter said the same thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. The other experimenter should have cleaned up after himself. Just ignore those objects. Or there was nothing on the table. And what they found is the participants gave their partners more, uh, more shocks if there was a rifle and a handgun on the table. Then, and there was no difference between having sports equipment on the table or nothing at all on the table. And this was especially true if participants had been angered first. And they called this uh, the weapons effect. And we, we recently replicated it in a driving simulation experiment. And we had participants in the Ohio State uh, driving simulation lab. It's a real car. And uh, they drove a very frustrating task that had like people cutting, cutting out in front of them and mimicking their behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, getting stuck in construction zones, you know, they pull up to a traffic light and it's red for a really long time and it turns green just for a second or two. And then it goes red again, right. you know, um, things like that. And, and they were told that um, the other drivers in this simulation were real people, just like themselves, real participants. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we did is we flipped a coin and we put either a tennis racket or a nine millimeter handgun on their seat, on the passenger seat. And we did exactly the same thing. We said, oh, I'm sorry. The other experimenter should have cleaned up after themselves. That's part of a different study. Just ignore it. And the problem is people can't ignore it because in our minds, there's a very strong link between weapons such as guns and aggression. And we found that participants were more aggressive drivers if there was a handgun on the passenger seat than if there was a tennis racket on the passenger seat. Wow, yeah, that, that's um, terribly, terribly interesting. The, um, uh, you know, it reminds me of, you know, um, just how you see uh, you look at suicide rates in police officers, right? Um, they they carry something on their person over, you know, every single day that's capable of ending their life. And it kind of adds up when you think that, that uh, you could be influenced by, by images or by objects that are in your person on a regular basis. Um, yeah, there was know. one really cool, we didn't do the study, but it was done in the UK where you mentioned police officers. They usually don't use uh, handguns in the UK, but they had a, a study with uh, taser guns. And it, it was a randomized clinical trial where they randomly assigned police officers to have taser guns or not. And what they found is police officers were more likely to be attacked by other people if they had a taser gun visible than if they had no taser gun. You think it would be the opposite. You'd be crazy to attack a police officer who had a taser gun visible, but 
um, that's the power of the weapons effect that um, this all, all occurs sort of at a below the level of conscious awareness that the link between weapons and aggression is very strong in the human mind. So it can influence people to uh, behave aggressively. Yeah, it's unfortunate, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of the gun violence uh, in, in our culture and, uh, uh, you know, debates around firearms in the age of, of school shootings, um, I, I, I've I surprisingly don't hear a lot about, about this effect. And it's clearly something that's worth discussing, which is that, um, you know, for, you know, Second Amendment aside, whether you agree or disagree with the Second Amendment, you still have to discuss the potential cultural changes in terms of the, the default behaviors that may or may not occur if you increase, you know, firearm presence, right? Agreed. Yeah. Um, great. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, potentially uh, some some differences in, in social development or, or children that might contribute to being uh, slightly more aggressive as you enter into adolescence and adulthood. Um, you, met, you briefly mentioned uh, uh, vi violent video games or violent media, uh, which is uh, always an interesting topic. It's, it's, it's probably a lot of misinformation around the link between violent video games and and, and actual violence. Could you clear the air uh, with respect to, to those findings? Yeah, sure. There's never complete consensus on any scientific topic, including exposure to violent media, but there's no, there's no theory that would predict that it's harmful for children to be exposed to violence in their home or in their neighborhood or in their school, but if they're exposed to it in the media, it's not harmful at all. I mean, no theory would make that prediction. Um, and, and the research evidence is pretty clear that exposure to violence in the media increases aggressive thoughts, it increases angry feelings, it increases physiological arousal, such as heart rate and blood pressure. It decreases feelings of empathy and compassion for others. It decreases helping behavior. And most important, it increases uh, aggressive behavior. And it also makes people numb to the pain and suffering of others. So the effects think... are pretty reliable. So, um... Just from obviously just from an anecdotal standpoint, you know, when I think about uh, so, you know, I was born in 1982. Uh, and if 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 I'm with a, a group of friends, I, you know, I don't have any friends that are that are aggressive or I would consider violent. Most of my, most of the people I hang out with, we've never we haven't been in fights our entire lives. Um, but of course, you know, in the nineties playing a lot of violent video games, your golden eye and stuff like that. Um, uh, do you think that there are sort of uh, cohort effects in the sense that, um, that in a different time, at least in the early stages of violent video games, 
there that the, the violence in the games was wasn't as realistic and therefore didn't have an effect on our our, our behavior versus uh, versus if you were to study this today, it's kind of a, a whole new ball of wax. Or do you think that 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 this link would be robust even if you look back then? I I think it would be robust even if you look at it back then, but it's definitely true. And we found in our own research that the magnitude of the effect is increasing over time. Um, and it could be that because video games are becoming more realistic, more graphic, more gory and bloody. Um, um, so that that's one contributing factor, but our research has also shown even like fantasy violence or, um, can increase aggression even in, in adults. So um, it's not the only factor or even the most important factor for sure, but it's not a trivial factor either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always thought that the, um, at least in children, uh, it always seemed as though one of the, 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 the dangerous things for parents to do is to uh, allow their their children to learn that violence can solve problems, that it's one strategy to solve problems. Um, Is there, would you agree with that? Is that, is that kind of how you would characterize uh, one of the, one of the things that parents should do to avoid, you know, having their child grow up to be more aggressive? Yeah, definitely. And my own, uh, colleague Amy Nathanson here at the Ohio State University has done research showing there are a number of things that parents can do. One is like um, called restrictive mediation, where you can put restrictions on the type of media your children consume or the amount of time. Like, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics, I think recommends like no more than two hours of entertainment media a day. So I know a parent that has like these carnival tickets and each one's worth 30 minutes and they give their kid four of these things. And they said, oh, you can, you know, use four of them today. That's uh, one way. Another way is sort of uh, an active mediation where the parents actually watch the movie with their child or play the video game with their child, but talk about it, talk about you know, how violence isn't the best way to solve problems. Talk about how unrealistic it might be. Like if a piano fell on you in real life, you would not stand up after and walk away. It would kill you, you know, um, talk, talk about other solutions to problems. And the third way is the parents watch the movie with their kids or, um, or play the video game with their kids and say nothing. That's the worst thing you can do. Because if you think your child assumes, oh, it's okay. Mom and dad aren't saying anything about how bad this is or whatever. So they think it has like a stamp of approval. If you're just watching, if you're just watching with your child or playing a violent game and say nothing, that that's worse than doing nothing at all, not even being present because the child assumes, oh, this is okay. Mom and dad are watching it or they're playing it and they're not saying anything bad about it. So the, it's very interesting. The, the part that, that I have uh, trouble with, maybe you could, you could help me understand this is that 
um, is that there there's in some cases a lot like of you know a movie that contains violence, a game that contains violence. Um, you know, I've I've heard from a lot of parents. It's like, well, you know, my kids they know it's fake. They 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 are cognitively capable of discerning the fantasy world from the real world and they know that they you know parents will will say to me like yeah i know that they they don't they know that you can't do that 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 it's sort of this fantasy world um is is there something in the research that directly contradicts that or or is it a different is there some some accuracy in that well we know that um children under about age seven or eight cannot distinguish reality from fantasy. So a parent may think um, that their child knows that it's fake, but if their child is young, like under about age seven or eight, they, don't, they cannot reliably determine. We also know that realistic violence has a larger impact than fantasy violence, but we also know that fantasy violence has an impact as well. The fact that you know it's fake doesn't mean it has no impact. Um, I don't know if you've ever done any virtual reality, like you wear a headset and they tell you to walk across this plank over this gorge. People know this is not a real gorge. This is not there. You know, if they step off the plank, they're not going to fall to their death. People know it's fake but it has a tremendous impact on people because our brains are old. And although the, the prefrontal cortex part of our brain, the part that's just behind our forehead involved in cognitive reasoning or whatever may know that it's fake, there are other parts of our brain that are very old and they are linked to survival and they know um, it doesn't matter whether it's fake or not to that part of the brain. They, they, they assume it's dangerous and give us warning signs about it. Yeah. I, I, I tell my students that all the time that your brain is uh, even though, uh, you know, cognitively uh, you are capable of recognizing that of course this is a video game, but, but all that, all that primitive stuff, all the, all the primitive stuff, your heart rate's still going up. Your pupils yes. are still dilating and you're still, yes. uh, get them, get them, get them right. There's, there's, you can't, you can't fight the, the hormonal changes that occur when you play some of these games. Right. Um, absolutely. Um, so in terms of these, uh, is there I'll throw out this crazy idea? Um, is there any evidence to uh, the idea that uh, playing, you know, playing some violent games allows uh, people to or young people to sort of um, scratch an itch uh, that 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 they know it's they know it's fantasy, but uh, you know it allows them to sort of maybe get some aggression, some anger out in a healthier way versus doing it in, in real life. Um, that's related to a theory called catharsis. It dates back to Aristotle who argued that it's healthy to view like Greek tragedies. And if you think about Greek tragedies, the characters like they don't grow old and die of natural causes. Most of them are murdered. And, um, 
Aristotle argued that it's healthy to, to view such tragedies because they allow you to cleanse or purge these negative emotions. And Freud, Sigmund Freud revived this ancient idea of catharsis, but there's actually no research evidence to support catharsis. Of course, it's better to kill a pixelated character than to kill a real person. That's, that's not up for debate. But the question is whether killing pixelated characters makes you a less aggressive person. The answer is very clear that it does not. It makes you a more aggressive person. So the idea that you'll become less angry and less aggressive by um, consuming violent media is a myth. Now, uh, you've, you've done some interesting work with, uh, with in this area. Uh, could you describe some of the, uh, in particular, I, I was always fascinated with the, the hot sauce um, experiment where you have individuals giving different amounts of, of hot sauce. Uh, could you talk a little bit about some of that? Yeah, sure. Um, so if you measure aggression in children, you can measure things like, you know, do they trip somebody or push them or kick them or pull their hair. Um, but in, in adults, in laboratory settings, most adults don't engage in those kind of behaviors. And so you have to come up with um, behaviors that still meet the definition of aggression, namely any behavior intended to harm another person who doesn't want to be harmed. Um, but are not violent criminal behaviors, right? Something that and can so, get past the, uh, the human rights board. <laughs> right. So, um, so studies, you, you know, there are a number of different measures that are used of aggression, like administering electric shocks to somebody, um, giving somebody loud blasts of noise through headphones. Uh, we, we use noise that's a combination of noises that people really hate, like, fingernails scratching on chalkboards, dentist drills, sirens, blow horns, all mixed together. And the noise levels can go up to 105 decibels, which is about like a smoke alarm. So that, you know, people hate, people hate this noise and uh, they don't, they don't want to hear it. Or you can tell them that their uh, partner hates spicy food and they can choose how much hot sauce their partner has to consume. And in our studies, we have them taste it first. You can't force them to taste it, but most of our participants taste it and they realize this is really spicy hot sauce. And so if they're, and they also know that their partner hates spicy food. So if they choose spicy food for their partner, um, that's behaving aggressively or how long their partner has to hold their hand in ice water, you know, and there's like ice cubes floating on the water, you know, that's not a pleasant uh, thing to stick your hand in uh, ice water. So those are some of the different ways researchers um, uh, measure aggression in the laboratory with uh, adults. Also um, money, you know, like people are given a chance to earn money and you stop them from earning the money. I see. Uh, so if, if uh, 
So catharsis, this idea of uh, you have uh, aggressive energy that builds up and uh, if you uh, get it out, then you're less likely to be aggressive. If that's, so we know that's a myth. Uh, are there, let's, let's continue down the path of managing anger. Uh, what are some things that we that would actually work uh, with uh, with anger? Yeah, so if you think of that, there's an analogy that's often used for anger, which is that anger builds up inside like steam inside a pressure cooker, and unless you vent the anger uh, uh, and blow off steam, you'll explode in an aggressive rage. So that's one. So one strategy is to vent your anger, like hitting, kicking, swearing, shouting punching a pillow, punching a punching bag. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard the old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? The answer is practice, practice, practice. Well, how do you become an angry, aggressive person? The answer is the same, practice, practice, practice. If When you become angry, if you hit, you kick, you shout, you scream, you yell, you swear, you're just practicing how to behave more aggressively. It's like using gasoline to put out a fire. It just feeds the flame. It keeps the arousal levels high. It keeps the aggressive thoughts active in memory, keeps the angry feelings alive. So venting is a terrible idea. Uh, and it's also research has shown it's bad for your heart. So another, the other idea is that you try to suppress it. You like keep it down and, um, uh, research has shown some evidence for that, like facial feedback studies where mm -hmm. like you, you can put a, you can put a pencil in your lips that makes a frown, or you can put it in your teeth that makes a smile. Th those kind of studies have shown that facial feedback can influence our emotions. So if you try not to show angry feelings that can, um, reduce them, but it also is bad for your heart to try to suppress angry emotions. So the best strategy is to turn down the heat. If you got a pot on the stove that's boiling, turn down the heat. And anger, like any emotion, has two primary components. One is physiological arousal. So another myth is if you're angry, you should go for a run. Um, going for a run might be good for your heart, but it's a terrible way to get rid of anger because it just keeps the arousal levels high. Interesting. So, That's interesting. Yeah, they, I, from, from uh, I, I can imagine in my head, uh, just from an anecdotal standpoint, someone saying, uh, you know, oh, I, I need, I need to run. I need to to get that energy out. Um, it, it, so, are, are are you saying that um, that it might um, it might feel good to to run to get aggressive energy out in, in terms of a short term benefit, but then long term, the next time you start to feel some anger or some frustration, that it's going to increase the likelihood of aggressive behavior. Or even right then, because you, you're just keeping your arousal levels high. And so uh, there's no doubt that running is good for your heart and you should do it. 
but you should not do it as an anger management technique because the goal, angry people are highly aroused. So the goal is to decrease the, uh, that arousal. That's why maybe your grandma said, oh, when you're angry, you should count to 10 before you say or do anything. Because as you count, the arousal level goes down. And Thomas Jefferson said, if you're really angry, you should count to 100. That's even smarter because right. more time passes. And as time passes, your arousal level goes down. So that's the goal if you're angry, to get the arousal level down. So other things you can do to get the arousal level down are things like you know, taking deep breaths, um, listening to calming music, uh, doing yoga, uh, meditating, doing some mindfulness stuff. Um, all of those strategies decrease arousal and angry people are aroused. So that's a, a good strategy. We've also done research showing that um, ang anger is an approach motivation. Angry people, like they lean forward, they're like in your face right. and they're very expressive. We've done uh, research showing if you just lean back, um, that that counteracts the approach motivation for anger, just to lean back um, is one way to reduce anger. Um, also, how you interpret an event matters a great deal, not just for anger, but for any emotion. So um, we've also done research showing that if you adopt a fly on the wall perspective, look at the event as if you were an outside observer, like you were a fly on the wall, um, then th that's effective because angry people are immersed in their anger. So step back, lean back, look at the situation as if you're a fly on the wall. Um, uh, other techniques that work are like distraction. Right. You know, angry people ruminate about what made them angry. So just distract yourself, you know, do, do a crossword puzzle or take a walk, just get your mind on something else. And one of the, perhaps the most effective things you can do is do something incompatible with anger and aggression, because you can't feel angry and empathy at the same time. So pet a puppy, mm -hmm. kiss your lover, help somebody in need, right? Those, those activities push out the angry feelings or watch a comedy, right? Uh, not a nonviolent one, <laughs> you know, um, um, because comedy and anger are incompatible. So push the anger out with an emotion that's not compatible with anger. For some religious people, it could involve like praying or, um, to um so those are uh and we we talked we talked a little bit um you know most people have heard of the term hangry which is hungry plus angry and um yep. and we talked a little bit about self-control well the part of our brain behind our forehead is the prefrontal cortex that's the part of our brain in charge of self-control and regulating our emotions. And the 
emotion that people have the most difficulty regulating is anger. And that part of the brain, it needs fuel to regulate emotion. And right. uh, the fuel is called glucose, which we get from the foods that we eat. So it's really important to feed our brains healthy food so that that part of our brain has the fuel needed to exercise self-control. Yeah, that's, wow. That's, that's, um, I, I didn't realize there were, there was, uh, there were that many, uh, potential ways to, uh, to manage anger. That was, that was very helpful. Um, oh, good. yeah, I, the, um, I'm, I'm curious the the, the cynic in me thinks of, I picture this sort of, uh, an individual that struggles with aggression and how, if they're, if they're struggling with aggression, they probably have low self-control. And if somebody has low self-control, they might, they may also have a hard time, um, creating or adding some of these helpful behaviors that you've just suggested. Um, is, do you think that, is it possible that working on the self-control part is, might, might be necessary beforehand, before, before you can start the mindfulness, before you can start the, um, the, the distraction piece? Don't, don't you have to have something uh, in your brain that that jumps in that, you know, that, that, that frontal cortex needs, needs to jump in and take control before you can do some of those behaviors. It definitely helps. But even something as simple as if you're angry, leaning back, that doesn't take a lot of like self-control. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the natural inc inclination is to lean forward, but if you just remember, Oh, lean back, you know, that's a, a useful strategy. And, um, there's some research to indicate that self-control is like a muscle that you can make stronger um, uh, by doing things that require self-control. You get better at it. So, for example, if you're right-handed, I don't know, open doorknobs with your left hand or stir things with your left hand or use your left hand for your mouse or whatever, you know, um, try sitting up straight and speaking incomplete sentences and things like that that take some conscious effort can Im improve your self-control. Keep track of what you do. So, you know, like, I don't know, there's this program called MyFitnessPal. It allows you to record the number of calories that you consume and it's free. Well, that takes effort to keep track of your calories. So anything that doesn't come naturally that requires some effort on your part can help increase your ability to exercise self-control. So it's not like you're either born with high self-control or you're not. Um, yeah, there's probably individual differences in self-control, but there are also situational and personal factors that can increase self-control. That's, that's helpful. Um, so as we, as we wrap up, I, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking, uh, talking about uh, the, our, our culture. Um, you see 
on on television, it feels like there's there's a spike in public displays of aggression, whether it is, you know, these incidents on planes. Recently, someone was specifically planes. You see it all the time. People had to duct tape, you know, the person to the chair. You see you see it at sports gatherings, road rage. You, You see all these. It feels like a giant spike in uh, uh, public displays of aggression. Um, and I'm sure the availability of, of camera phones and stuff like that is probably has something to do with it. But as someone who's studied aggression for quite some time, uh, what do you think's going on? Well, I think the pandemic doesn't help for sure, because uh, I, I know at least two factors the pandemic has increased gun sales dramatically and increased alcohol consumption dramatically. And we know both of those are risk factors for aggression and violence, but it's probably also increased feelings of frustration, you know, um, being confined to home. You, ha- you know, um, at my university, the Ohio State University, you have to be vaccinated. You have to wear a mask indoors. Um, you know, and I think those are all smart things to do to reduce the spread of COVID-19, but, you know, some people don't want to do those things and they, they view them as an infringement on their rights or whatever. So, um, well, you could, you could also say that all this stuff is reducing self-control resources, right? That that maybe people need to stop being aggressive. And so, you know, meanwhile, while I'm masking up and avoiding someone coughing on me, I've let my guard down and now, well, now I've got to fight the stewardess, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so on my webpage, I have a take-home message about aggression and violence. And it's this, after doing research aggression and violence for over 30 years, I've come to the conclusion that the most harmful belief people can have is the belief that they are superior to others. For example, their religion, race or ethnicity, gender or gender identity, sexual orientation, political party or ideology, school, city, state, country, et cetera, is the best. When people believe they're superior to others, they behave very badly. Every person on this planet is part of the human family. No person is more or less valuable than any other person. That's, that's wonderful. And I think that is a, uh, that is a perfect time to wrap up. Uh, Thank you for the education on, uh, on aggression and on, uh, I I love all the anger management stuff. I'm definitely going to have to try that, even though uh, I, I, I typically don't, engage in a ton of aggressive behavior, but I I definitely uh, look forward to trying some of those things. Thank you for being on Brad Bushman. Sure. My pleasure. For more on Brad, head to his faculty page on the Ohio State University School of Communication website, com.osu.edu. That's C-O-M-M dot Or follow him on Twitter at 
Brad J. Bushman. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question Why Do We Do That? <laughs>